Welcome to TD Cowan Insights, a space that brings leading thinkers together to share insights and ideas shaping the world around us. Join us as we converse with the top minds who are influencing our global sectors. Thank you for joining us for another exciting episode in our Biotech Decoded podcast series. I'm Yaron Werber, Senior Biotechnology Analyst at TD Cowan. I'm super excited to be joined today by Chris Garabedian in this episode called Biotech Investing During Bear Markets. We're going to be discussing early stage investing, value creation, and how biotechs are adjusting to the new tough fundraising reality. Chris is the co-founder, chairman, and CEO of Zantageny and portfolio manager of the Perceptive Advisors Venture Fund. Previously, he was the president and CEO of Sarapta Therapeutics and led corporate strategy for Celgene. Prior to Celgene, Chris served in a number of global, commercial, and corporate development leadership roles at Gilead. Chris also serves on a number of boards of life sciences companies and was a senior advisor for the Boston Consulting Group and is a member of the Corporate Relations Board for the Keck Graduate Institute. So Chris, thank you so much for joining us. It's great to see you and uh, I really appreciate you being with us. Yeah, great to be part of this and thanks for the invitation, Yaron. So, you know, it's been so fun doing the biotech hangout with you and you've been so kind to to invite us and it's a, such a great highlight of the week for me of kind of following what you're all thinking and what happened during the week. And then, you know, it really dawned on me, you and I have known each other literally for years and years going back to the early days of Gilead and the early days of Celgene. And, and you've had such a, an amazing career, both as an operator and now very much as sort of a venture investor. And I figured we, we, we got to get together for this podcast because there's so much to talk about, you know, literally 20, 25 years worth of history here. Excited to be here. So let, let's talk a little bit. You started your career, you know, in many different facets, and then you had a commercial experience and corporate development experience at Gilead. And then you transitioned to Celgene where you ran BD. How did all of that impact your view on company formation? Yeah, it was it was twofold, really. You know, Gilead was a really unique experience because it was really during their growth years. Uh, when I joined, they had a little over 100 employees. They were less than a half a billion dollar market value. And when I left about eight years later, you know, they had a couple thousand employees and were 25 billion plus in market value. Uh, Celgene was already fairly established when I joined them. But they were in a growth trajectory. They had just launched Revlimid and uh, hadn't catalyzed to the to the big biotech that you know we know today or after you know before BMS acquired them. But there were really two main things that I learned, which was kind of best practice for good drug development, not from large pharma, which you know had these huge bureaucracies, you know tens of thousands of employees, but how can a small team come together? and get drugs over the finish line. And so being part of those smaller teams and learning what what does that look like was one component that shaped my view of what is required for a small biotech to drive a successful drug development program. The other piece of it was, I'm more on the BD side, and just to, to clarify, uh, Celgene separated their kind of M&A and corporate strategy from the traditional BD uh, which was led by Perry Carson, George Golombeski, uh, while I was there. But what I would do is really focus on a, the larger transformational M&A. So, uh, you know, led the Farmion deal from soup to nuts. We uh, identified Abraxas uh, when we acquired that. I presented to the board a number of 
uh, strategic acquisition targets like just remembering Insight and Onyx and Alexion. And uh, there were a number of them that we were proposing like these would be good acquisition targets. At Gilead, I did kind of the whole gamish from BD to M&A. But, you know, both of those companies, they really demanded often to get a deal done with a Gilead or a Celgene. And so we were in that position where people were calling on us. They were kind of hoping that they could get a meeting with us. And so being on that, what I would call buy side of the industry, right? You know, we were the acquirers or the licensors. You really started to be discerning of, wow, which management teams had their acts together? Where did they have the pitfalls? Where did they kind of mess up? Wow, you really messed up that, you know, manufacturing, uh, you know, uh, run or, gee, why did you approach the FDA with that strategy in question? And you would see where there were kind of the, 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 the uh, weakest link of the chain of all of the different disciplines. And so one thing I always had in the back of my mind, even before I um, became a CEO of Sarepta, was that, wow, a lot of early stage biotechs get it wrong. They mess up early and it's unrecoverable. It's hard to go back and redo everything. And so a lot of good science, a lot of good technologies never find success because they made those early mistakes. Mm-hmm. So that was something that I always had like, wow, uh, if I'm going to get involved in something, I, I think it's better to get involved from inception to get involved as early as possible so that you can help uh, that founding team or the scientists need not make those early mistakes. So th- that was probably the most formative thing from the Gilead and, and Celgene days that I brought with me to what I do now. I didn't know I'd be doing what I'm doing now, but it was definitely kind of a guiding principle that I had in the back of my head. You know, and, and as you think about things that Gilead and Celgene did right, they were instrumental in the long-term success. And I'm not talking about developing the right molecule. I'm talking about on the operations, execution, management committee level. What, what sort of came to mind? Well, you know, it's really interesting because they really had very different corporate cultures. Gilead was very austere. They, I don't want to say miserly, but they would fine tune a program budget and, you know, there would be very little fat in there and they would obsess over the design of a clinical trial or whatever, you know, regulatory strategy. It was very fine tuned and it was largely about, you know, once we knew what we wanted to do, then it was all execution focused. And the culture was very much that, you know, there, there wasn't a lot of room for trying things out that we weren't sure about, right? Or, or allowing serendipity of R&D to take hold. Um, and partly that was because they were largely initially focused on antivirals, which are very predictive in preclinical models, right? It's uh, you know, a lot easier if you can uh, deal with a bacteria or a virus in vitro, it kind of translates to in vivo. And so, you know, you had the more courage of your convictions. Celgene, and partly this has a little bit to do with where they resided geographically, right? Celgene was in the, the middle of pharma. And so the talent pool that was in, you know, northern New Jersey was, you know, from, from, from Pfizer to GSK, you know, um, in Philly, right? It, they were really bringing a lot of pharma uh, uh, experience, but they, they did bring some folks like me from Gilead. Tom Daniel came from Amgen. There was a, a CFO, Dave Grisco, who came from Sios. And so they were bringing in some of us biotech, you know, uh, culture. 
into northern New Jersey. But what I appreciated when I first got to Celgene, I have to say, I was like, how does this company survive? They're they're like, you know, not efficient at all. And what I realized was they were very efficient compared to Big Farm and everybody else. They just weren't as efficient as Gilead. Um, but what they did, and and you knew, you know, Saul and Jerry Zeldis and a lot of the folks on the R and D side there, but they would allow that serendipity. They would they were willing to uh, take an idea. And a lot of this came from the investigators they worked with, as you know. And thalidomide was one of those drugs that because of the REM system, they knew every single application that thalidomide was used for. And so it was almost like an exploratory R&D in the clinical setting to help guide development, not just of thalidomide, but lenalidomide and pomalidomide and where could you know this whole platform go. And so I fully appreciated, not at first, but I came to recognize that there are more than one paths to success, um, more than one good corporate culture. But I I think Gilead later probably uh, realized they needed to do a little bit more of that cell gene, right? Exploratory, going into new areas to be successful for the long term. And so I kind of took the best of those two cultures uh, with me when uh, I ended up joining, you know, what became uh, Sarepta. Yeah. So let, let's talk about Sarepta. That that was a transition. And Sarepta at the time was a a company that was sort of doing a lot of sort of genetic engineering, sort of early pioneer in gene therapy and genetic manipulation, so to speak, uh, or genetic therapies. And um, when you when you came in, that there was the company was beginning to go in a new direction. C- can you talk about that? What, what was the opportunity set that even motivated you to to go there because that was very much a turnaround story with an undercapitalized small company that really needed a lot of work ahead. Yeah, you know, um, as the years go by, fewer and fewer really know the original origins of Sarepta. But a brief sketch of it was: this was a company that was founded in 1980 on technology that was discovered in the 1970s, uh, and it was a unique chemistry scaffold uh, called phosphorodiamidate morpholino oligonucleotides. And this scaffold was kind of the early, one of the early Antisense companies, along with Isis, uh, Ionis, and uh, Gilead, interestingly, was one of the early pioneers of Antisense. But this little company in the Pacific Northwest, which uh, was called AVI Biopharma, and it stood for Antivirals Inc., um, and that was the name of the company when I took over as CEO. They were using the exact same technology that they had discovered in the 70s. Now, you know, fast forward, um, they were able to survive because they went public about 15 years before I joined. And they were able to do these. I mean, you know this as a, you know, kind of banker. They they did these warrant-laden deals with heavy discounts to just keep the company alive, but highly dilutive and not any shareholders that you would, you know, uh, think are reputable, you know, we're, we're, we're in it for the long term. And so what really happened was they attempted to apply this technology multiple times, bringing products into the clinic and they all failed. I think they had seven programs, polycystic kidney disease, hepatitis C, uh, West style virus, like they all ended up failing. And what I saw when I came on board was that they just didn't have the rigor of early developed. There were some great scientists. And and one of the reasons I, it appealed to me to join them was they were really strong evangelists for this differentiation of this RNA platform. I thought that the choices that they made on drug development and 
and coming out of Gilead and Celgene and knowing what best practices look like, I felt was lacking. The, the other piece of it was when I came on board, some of the key investors were mostly focused on their antiviral programs, which were government contracts for Ebola, Marburg, hemorrhagic fever virus, pandemic flu. And you know, long before COVID at that time, there wasn't a lot of investor interest in that. And I'm like, guys, you know, and I joined the board. So the, the reason I got involved was I was asked to join the board of directors and I wanted to get some public company board experience, had no intention to join as CEO. But once I got more involved, the investors and the board got to know me better. They started kind of leaning on me. Would you consider taking on the CEO role? And I said no probably half a dozen times. But what convinced me was they had this early signal in a European study in Duchenne muscular dystrophy. It wasn't the best design study. They looked at very low, low doses than what's being used now in DMD and didn't even get to the doses that are currently approved. And they saw some modicum of response, but not something that would like, you know, get every anybody excited. But I felt that there was enough of a signal there with some of the dystrophin fibers that they were producing that it was worth pursuing. So one of my conditions for coming on board was like, look, you know, we can support the government contracts, but we need to focus on this DMD. The company at that time wanted to partner worldwide rights and they they literally couldn't give it away. So I said, look, let's develop this ourselves. You know, why is Pfizer going to know any better how to develop this than us? Mm. Let, let's do this ourselves. Number two, I'm going to have to raise money to do it. So get ready for dilution investors, you know, but, but look, I come from companies that have a good return on, you know, equity investment. And number three, I'm probably going to need to replace a lot of the staff and management team. And that may take some time, but we need to bring in uh, and, and attract kind of the best talent that we can. So that was the beginning of 2011 is when I assumed the role of CEO. And I actually canceled their poorly designed phase two study that was about to dose. Uh, and I said, we're going to go back to the drawing board and try to design this in the best way possible. We're going to re-engage FDA. We're going to get this on a fast track, even though we're delaying the program. Long story short, I ended up raising about $30 million from some more reputable investors, Perceptive being one of them. They had an early position in the company before I... I joined and uh, it took us about 18 months. But on that $30 million, we did a small phase two study. Now it's you know well known or notorious. And that readout, when we finally unveiled the 48-week data, we went within two months from a $70 million market cap to a billion on the day we announced the phase two data. And then at that point, everybody was paying attention. The bankers had to cover us. We were able to raise a lot more money to build out manufacturing and produce more drug. And then there was the back and forth with the FDA. But for me, it was the learnings from Gilead and Celgene on, you know, focus on a high value proprietary program, get that right, and then you can open the door to do a lot more stuff. And then I helped advance some of the other early chemistries that one of them uh, was a project I started that's in the clinic now with Sarepta PPMO mm -hmm. uh, that's in the clinic, but really uh, focused on bringing those three drugs into the clinic in the US that are now FDA approved uh, for targeting three specific exons. And at that time, again, DMD was a sleepy area. And now mm. there's, you know, 50 companies, you know, going after DMD. But, uh, you know, that was a formative experience. I wouldn't trade it for anything. And uh, definitely, this is how I'll bring it full circle. If I could do that with Sarepta with a 30-year-old technology that was largely failed, that was somewhat mediocre, wasn't the best cutting-edge technology out there. How 
much more fun would I have if I could select some of the best early technologies and be involved from the beginning so that they don't make the mistakes that Sarept and other companies did in their early development. So that's when it kind of all came to fruition to say, this is what I want to do. I want to work from early lead candidate through clinical proof of concept. And I don't need to be involved in commercial or pricing or any of that stuff anymore. I just want to create the most value inflection there. Yeah, yeah. So that that was quite a transition. And at the end, at the time, there was also PTC and the Procensa Wars and, uh, you know, Bayern Moran ultimately buying Procensa. I mean, that was quite an exciting time. And and the role of a patient started with Genzyme, right? Yeah. But he got powered to a totally different level, you know, with with you and Sarepta and obviously the, the DMD Foundation as well and, and you know, and, and, and cures. When, when you're thinking about the industry in hindsight, sort of before DMD and after DMD, how, how on the orphan side, how have things really transitioned? Yeah, you raise a good point. I think there were a lot of factors. There was a confluence of factors that, that caused that. So, so number one was the uh, PDUFA 5 was when they really put a mandate out and said, FDA, you're not using accelerated approval for rare disease. And so in the summer of 2012, and this was in the works, they were really pushing the FDA to focus on rare disease and to think about accelerated approval for rare disease. So that was, there was a regulatory kind of legislative push. Number two was the FDA started meeting with these companies, uh, partly for cover, partly to show that they're taking the patient voice. But you started to see this emergence where you'd have patient groups meeting with the FDA that was shaping their opinion about FDA policy, about how to interact with the companies that were developing those drugs, right? The third thing was the social media phenomenon, right? This was, you know, I remember investors would come to me, your own, and they would say, uh, you know, Chris, I had to join Twitter because I was missing out on key information about your company that was being posted on Twitter. And this, many who followed this story know there were patients who were, um, or, or parents that were posting videos of their child who had, had gone past the placebo-controlled version. Mm-hmm. And this was giving a lot of people excitement about how good the drug was working. So, and Twitter became this kind of community of investors, industry people, media, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. The company has to be careful about what we say on social media. But, but that was this confluence of events that kind of, you can't go back to before that, right? And that is what I think catapulted and Sarepta just happened to be uh, the company, along with the other ones you mentioned, Procensa and PTC, at the the epicenter of those changes that were happening in in industry. Mm. There were chat rooms. It was the beginning of a lot of formal uh, workshops, right, between PMD and FDA. They were open to the public, and you can really glean a lot as to how things are transitioning and really kind of gave a big booster, as you said, to an accelerated pathway. And flexibility at endpoints, right, in a fairly major way. Um so then, then you decided to, you know, after Sarepta, you moved on to early stage biotech investing. You were obviously co-founded Zantagene with, with a team at Perceptive. H- how did your thinking evolve? I think you started talking about that already. And um, yeah. And what, what was surprising to you that you didn't anticipate in early stage investing? Yeah. Well, well first, I didn't know I was going to start Zantagene initially. I was getting a lot of recruiter calls for other CEO gigs and trying to figure out what type of company I would want to lead next. And, but 
what surprised me was um, how many people, some I knew, some from my network, some cold calls, but the number of entrepreneurs and scientific founders who'd followed my career, you know, or knew me as the CEO of Sarepta and would reach out and say, hey, will you uh, be our chairperson? Will you be a senior advisor for us? Will you uh, be a partner and we'll give you some equity to help us with our company? And I really was surprised at the volume of these requests without putting a flag out saying what I was going to do next. Yeah. And in the first nine months after leaving Sarepta, I had about 70 of these, so dozens of these requests. And I realized, and you know, not all of them were great. And I'd say, well, let me see your pitch deck and what are you trying to do? And, you know, it, it was more of a kind of coaching mentorship initially. Mm-hmm. And then for some of them, I thought, okay, these are worthy enough. I, I'm going to write a check out of my own pocket. I'm going to help fund this. But then I quickly realized I'm not going to be able to scale this. And the best way to do this is to have a team that can help me manage a portfolio. You know, I can't keep writing checks out of my own pocket for every one of these. And so that's when I went to Perceptive Advisors, who I knew well as a public company CEO. And they loved the idea. You know, you know, they were a big a public equity investor. Uh, they had started, you know, they'd been involved in crossover investments, but they really hadn't done much seed or series A investing in their history. And so they thought this was complimentary. They had just uh, launched a credit fund strategy. So they were starting to diversify their investment vehicles. And they knew me as an operator. They saw me kind of front row seat, uh, Joe Edelman, Adam Stone, you know, they, they would meet with me more than before I met any of the other analysts or managing directors at the company. They kind of knew what they were getting. They liked the idea. And for me, it was kind of there were some parts of being a CEO that were not the parts that got me most excited. Okay. So I really love the drug development parts of it. I love getting studies right, you know, waiting for readouts, right? You know, you design something and you wait and you wait for the big payoff, right? And as a CEO, you're dealing with, you know, investment conferences, you're reading SEC documents and, you know, you're, you're preparing for, you know, uh, governance and board of directors meetings. You're calling, you know, you're getting calls from media. You're, you know, you get investor calls when there's a rumor on Twitter and they want to clarify. And like, and then you've got a large company and you got personnel issues. And so when you add up all of these things that you have to do as a CEO uh, and deal with, I realized like, wow, I, you know, I'm not doing as much of the fun part. And wouldn't it be cool to just help CEOs and entrepreneurs? get that drug development piece right. And so that's how kind of Zontogeny was born. Perceptive loved it. And what they said was, we don't want you running around trying to raise the Series A rounds for all of these seeded companies. So why don't you join our firm, help us launch our first venture strategy. And uh, that was, you know, I joined them in 2017. We started talking to investors, LPs in 2018. We closed our first fund in 2019 at 210 million. Our, we deployed that quickly, like during COVID. Uh, in 2021, May of 2021, we closed our second fund at 515 million. We're still deploying capital out of that. We'll probably need to go and raise fund three next year. So, you know, that's kind of the, the big story. But, you know, I love it. We've made over uh, 25 investments from the two venture funds. We've made 16 seed investments out of Zontogeny, five of which have graduated to the venture funds. So, um, uh, yeah, I, I enjoy it. Now, the, the markets haven't been great the last couple of years, but you know, we're weathering through and um, you know, not going away. 
So let, let's, uh, I definitely want to talk about the challenges of, of investing in, in this new reality, which is obviously a big focal point for this uh, podcast specifically. But when you're thinking about the investment philosophy at Zantagene in early stage, what are you looking for? Um, and this really hasn't changed from inception. So first of all, the, the venture fund invests across life sciences, right? Um, diagnostics, devices, we've done tools, companies, all that. Um, where we felt the greatest need was for seed where Zontogeny plays an active management role in addition to uh, providing seed capital is in that drug development side, as we talked about earlier. So um, we mostly do the seed investments for drug technologies, right? And advancing those, usually we want to see at least a lead compound. Um, it doesn't have to be an optimized lead. That's great if they have an optimized lead. But a lead compound that has been tested in at least a model or two it could be an in vitro patient cell line. It could be a rodent model. It could be more than that. But we want to see the kind of preclinical initial proof of concept. Does the Do you have a proof of mechanism? Uh, is it a validated target? What differentiates your technology? So what we're not doing, which there's a lot of other firms that will, we don't really like to engage in uh, early drug discovery, right? Hey, uh, I think I've got a new cool target. Uh, it's not validated, but we did this knockout mouse and extended survival, and we want to start a medicinal chemistry program to find a lead. Yeah. Well, that's going to be millions of dollars. It's going to take a couple of years. Maybe it'll work. Maybe it won't. Maybe we're mistaking, you know, uh, causation for correlation or, you know, vice versa. So like we we're we're still not that quick to embrace early discovery. But if you've got a lead compound and you're meeting an unmet need, then what we like to do is get involved where we either optimize that lead for you and better characterize it. Now, that could be another uh, in vivo model. It could be going into a larger species. It could be doing some more uh, you know, um, tissue distribution work. It could be uh, looking at more of PKPD or dose range finding, right? Uh, and it could be that we need a pre-IND meeting because this is a complex area. We need to get guidance from the FDA. But all of those choices and things you can do in early development before you're going to the you know, the routine IND enabling toxicology, right? We, you know, let's check the boxes and get our IND submitted. We're trying to de-risk these early opportunities as much as possible so we can have more predictive power for what might uh, happen in the clinic or what's the right strategy to apply this technology in the clinic. And then the series A, which, you know, we can come in and lead or co-lead or follow another, you know, that's really trying to get the company through through an open IND, uh, sometimes you'll need a healthy volunteer, you know, single ascending dose, multiple ascending dose studies. But we, our, our, our North Star is we need to get to the value inflection of a clinical proof of concept in patients. That can be a small phase 1B, right, or phase 2A. But that's our goal. We want to hold on to our investments and our management of that program until we get to that, you know, at least clear signal or, or, or early signal in patients uh, in the clinic. So what what are you seeing from from your approach now that interest rates are high, capital is tighter, it's much more expensive, and the availability new funds are not popping up the way they used to, you know, three years ago. And as a result, uh, people are obviously warehousing uh, funds to to support their current portfolios. What what are you seeing both on your side, sort of from your approach, and also within companies? How are people reacting? To it? Yeah, you know, it's definitely slowing down. 
What I mean by that is we were in an era, probably a five, six year run, where nobody was worried about where the next check was going to come from. So what what that did is it it produced behavior across early venture capital, private equity, where you saw a few things. You saw larger funds. You saw them wanting to create new companies. You saw VC funds who were not worried about writing the whole Series A check, thinking that there's going to be another investor who's going to write the next check at an up round. And you would look across the, let's take the top 20 VCs, where you know, if you went back 10, 15 years ago, you know, you'd see some, you know, some Series Cs, some Series Bs, uh, you know, a handful of Series As. You'd see some Series Ds and Fs, right? And that's what venture was, right? It was a long game, and you had to kind of select where you were going to, you know, diversify your investments. Well, what you saw from circa 2000, you know, 17 to 2021 is every VC was only doing Series As right? And they were leading them, right? And what that did was it produced a lot of inventory of companies. And so if you look at where we are today, I often, I've been saying this over the last you know, year and a half, the hardest thing right now is to get a new investor to come in to write a series B to lead a series B. And, you know, and that's because we have just still too much of these series A funded companies. Now, what did the VCs do first? They're like, okay, we need a bridge round. We need an insider extension. We need to lay off. We need to rationalize these programs. How do we get to a key value inflection to make this an attractive you know, investment? But it trickled down. And what I mean by that is it slowed down this pace of Series A investments. So while Series B is the hardest, the next artist is the Series A. And then the seed stage, these are usually different types of investors often. And they sometimes think, well, we have money to deploy. We'll, we'll do a seed investment. Well, I don't think they're quite realizing how difficult it might be versus, let's say, five years ago to get that Series A round completed. Because most of these seed funds don't have the wherewithal to, to continue investing or write a big Series A check. So that's why all of us have kind of slowed down. We're, we're still investing. I mean, you know, um, uh, we've kind of moved from the earlier stage toward later stage opportunities, you know, further de-risk. So for example, our venture fund, which was only doing series A's and fund one, uh, we've done some series B. We did a large series A in cargo that's in the queue to go public uh, right now. Um, you know, Toral's another cancer company that we supported a series B uh, in that company. We just led a series C with a big syndicate of 175 million in Avalon. And so the reason for that is that when valuations have come down and there's an abundance of opportunities for private equity to invest in, it crowds out the early stage opportunities. Now, this has always been the case. Well, why should I invest in your drug discovery when this company's already got a lead and it's already got preclinical data? I'm going to go after that. It's not that much more value, uh, you know, uh, pre-money value. So I think that's what we're seeing. I think it's going to take another year to really get to full steady state. I described it like a, um, how do you get someone who's really drunk sober? You know, you, you can't do anything but wait for time. And I think we've gone from like a 0.3 alcohol level at the beginning of this to like 0.15. But, you know, I, I think sober is kind of at least in the horizon. So you're, you're prescribing, uh, you know, high dose IV, IV saline <laughs> stats. Is all that's exactly right. 
um, to maybe we can just kind of expedite this this cleanse. Um, when when you're thinking about, you know, what one of your you're you're looking at early stage investing as you mentioned, you're still even Series B. We're still talking about sort of young companies. Yeah, they're very techno, techno, technology target. The the management quality is a little bit more variable. A lot of times, your first line first time CEOs almost always. Some sometimes they're the, the founder scientist, right? What as you think about from an investment to you know real company formation longer term, what do you look for in a, in the first time CEO? So there, there are different flavors of first-time CEOs, right? Um, you know, people like to point out that, you know, Henry Termier was a first-time CEO and Art Levinson was and John Martin, a big mentor of mine, right? So, but I think I'm looking at, so what are you bringing to the table, right? So what is your experience and not just how many years and what is, you know, where were you on your resume, but what's your track record of success, right? So, you know, one of the, the first things I like to ask anybody that I'm hiring or interviewing is, um, you know, what, what, what are you most proud of in terms of your contribution that, you know, you feel was, you know, you directly had an impact on, right? And that's a, that's a softball that anybody, you know, it's saying pick the best thing you've done and accomplished. And so, uh, I'm surprised how many people are kind of caught flat footed on that, but I want to hear about what skills they have and how they demonstrated that that's success in the past. When you're dealing with this, this I'll call it a, a you know a more um, burgeoning movement of founder-led biotech, right? These are young, you know, scrappy, passionate entrepreneurs um, who don't have a lot of experience. I I want to harness that energy and that passion and that commitment because that is valuable, right? They're not going to quickly jump to the next opportunity, but I'm looking for a level of humility. I'm looking for flexibility. Um, you know, coupled with that passion and and that passion should be about what they believe they know more than anybody else, right? What what insight do they have around their science, their technology? And they're they're gonna have to convince me that like nobody else has figured this out and we've got it, right? And we got the IP around it. So like I want them to be expert in something as it relates to the entire scientific thesis and program, but not expecting them to be expert in drug development, you know? And so it's a, it's going to ultimately have to be a collaboration and they're going to have to be able to listen and they're not going to, you know, we don't want them to cower in the corner and not contribute. They're part of the team. And so what I've learned across my career is some of the best synergy happens when you have a great scientist or entrepreneur who's been thinking about this full-time 24-7 for years sometimes, mm-hmm. and coupling that with good, disciplined drug developers who know what to do with you know, harnessing and amplifying that, you know, that cool data set or that's that signal that might be there. Yeah. A lot of first-time CEO, and we've been writing about that extensively historically and even talked about this in the podcast series with some of the guests, feel that they need to be the domain expert in every area. And that's absolutely not what the job description's about, right? The job is to really be how to be a leader quarterback, get the best out of people and get the team to operate well and make the best decision and execute. Very different skill set, so to speak. I mean, that that leadership and vision is important and they should constantly think about that and also be ready to kind of 
look for opportunistic areas to exploit, right? And we invite that. We like that. And we, as long as they don't get distracted, like, hey, we've got a lead program. Like, we don't want you to spending 80% of your time on what next. But you're exactly right. I think a good CEO, they always need to be in student mode, always learning, right? And trying to become as expert in these other disciplines that they may not have kind of come through the ranks on. But asking good questions, you know, that Socratic method to uncover information, to uncover possibilities, right? And if you do that right, it's actually, it builds a great corporate culture, right? When you could ask questions and say, hey, I'm open to anything. Like, what are the possibilities here? And then the job of a good CEO is also to, you know, clamp down when it needs to be clamped down and focus. Um, so, yeah, I think we're looking for a personality that doesn't have all the answers, that is in constant learning mode, and that is really flexible and open to hearing um, other more experienced, you know, ideas. Yeah. So what, as you think about your, your experience on both sides, what advice would you give to other early stage investors as they think about sort of deploying capital, especially you, you've seen these markets now both ways, right? Boom to busts. It, it's real simple. And this will sound funny or a little bit um, counterintuitive. The best thing, because there's a lot of early stage investors, they think it's only about the science. If the science is cool, right, or is well explained that, wow, that's what we're going to invest in. Look at this nature paper, right? Wow, look at this experiment. And in my, you know, 33-year history in the industry now, like I've not seen any correlation between the most elegant science or well-published, right, experiments to success in biotech. In fact, sometimes it's a mediocre drug or, I mean, we know this, like a lot of scientific theses that were ridiculed or dismissed become the new blockbusters, right? So I think it's not to make the mistake that it's about the science. Yes, of course, doing due diligence and having, you know, your, your baseline substrate make, you know, but, but nobody invests in bad science. So you're all starting with some baseline of good science. The real issue is what do you do with it? What's your next experiment? How do you design a program? What's your regulatory strategy, right? How have you uh, produced a preclinical data set will predict what will work in the clinic? And so I think all of that is what I call drug development. So don't confuse, you know, people think, oh, there's science and there's business or there's R&D and there's commercial. No, there's drug development is this big chasm in the middle of all of that, right? That a lot of people ignore. And I'd say that's the best advice I could give to early stage investors. Yeah. And you know, one of the things when, when we were on the operator side that amazed me, which I, I guess I never really appreciated that before being on this side of the fence, you know, as, a, as an analyst, is how many of the, the nature papers, even are, is the science papers, the best yeah. labs, right? You cannot reproduce that data. And no, the data is not fraudulent. That's sort of not at all what right. we're saying. Yeah. But a lot of these experiments are very unique and they're not reproducible and amazing companies get founded. And then they just struggle to operationalize it or scale it. Uh, you know, what happens in a lab in a small scale is not exactly what happens <laughs> in the company. For sure. Um, so as, as you're thinking, maybe kind of a uh, last question as we go into my favorite part of the, of the podcast at the end, as you're thinking about now over the next three to five years, what, what are some of the most promising sort of new areas and technologies that you're seeing? Yeah, you know, that's always a question that's hard because if you go back 10 years, 20 years, right? You're kind of seeing every area that we have as modalities uh, continue to improve, right? So 
you look at where we are today with RNA therapeutics, it, it's, it continues to evolve, right? So that's an exciting area, right? A DNA gene therapy, CRISPR-based setting, right? That's evolving, right? Um, you know, antibodies, you know, uh, we're going, you know, ADCs, bispecifics, tri-specifics, right? So we continue to see these modality areas grow uh, significantly. And I think that's pretty cool. But for me, it's how we apply the new tools to accelerate that, that innovation curve. And that's where, um, on one hand, I can say AI machine learning is not going to be the be all end all to solve all our problems. But what I'm hopeful for is it will start to unlock some of the interactions, whether it's, you know, a 3D moving pictures of inside a cell and or protein folding, or um, how we can use some of these new tools to do better drug discovery and produce better thoroughbreds at the starting gate. You still have to do good drug development, but I'm excited to learn that. And obviously that also applies to the understanding of the biology of disease, genetic basis of disease. I'm looking for tools to unlock new possibilities because I think we're, we're pretty mature on the modality front in a lot of areas at this point. A lot of the challenges is if you look at the last, right, the last boom, so to speak, the last cycle, it was a cycle of new technologies and, but I would say the commonalities validated targets and there was almost too much capital, right? So think about it, there's like 20 different revlimids in development, you know, how can anybody possibly win? Now we're going into this next cycle and it was a lot in neuro, it was a lot, obviously a lot in oncology, a lot of in rare, a little bit increasingly in I and I, and now it's very common in I and I. And so, you know, as we're kind of thinking for us, we're getting a lot more interested in sort of unvalidated early stage novel targets, yeah. because at the end of the day, right, there's two ways you can create value in the near term and validation. But then it's going to be very hard to monetize that long term in a competitive environment. It's better off to be sort of first and uh, in a new area. But of course, that carries its own sort of risk. Well, I would say there's two things. How do you how do you accelerate testing those new unvalidated targets in vivo, and how do you improve the models in which you're actually testing them in? If we can improve those two things, I think you're going to see a lot more interest in unvalidated targets. Yeah. So let's go into the next part. That's my favorite one where we really get to know people uh, and a little touch of humor. If you could become a professional athlete, which sports and position would you play? I'm, I'm not a great athlete. I like recreational, like, you know, skiing and hiking and that sort of stuff. But, you know, I'm always intrigued by the more mental aspects of sport. And I think, you know, uh, golf is one of those where it's you against kind of, you know, the elements or the ball or you're, you're battling with your mind. How do you recover from, you know, a bad, you know, hole, you know, et cetera. So, you know, that's something that I think would be constantly fulfilling because you're always competing against yourself while you have a group that you want to try to beat, but you could, you could lose a match and still feel you had an amazing day or vice versa. You could be beating yourself up, even if you ended up with a lower score than everybody else that you're playing with. And similar to that would be like that one-on-one, -on -one, you know, uh, that tennis or wrestling or where it's you against one other person, uh, where there's a different type of mental, you know, or, or, or boxing or, or something like that. Like, you know, that to me is there's a mental element of that, you know, psyching opponent out, being prepared. I don't know. That to me would be, you know, kind of cool to do at a, at a, at, at the highest level. 
That, that's it's incredible because, as you said, so much of it is mental to physical, and you tighten up in golf and you go right downhill, right? Uh, you tighten up in tennis and you go right downhill. I would be, you know, for me, th- this one's a tough one. I would either be, I played, you know, soccer growing up, so I would go back and play, you know, center halfback, and, uh, you know, the game is so, you know, for me, it was delivering the ball and, and getting, you know, kind of unfolding a strategy and position of people. Um, or I would be a professional triathlete. I mean, I've done, you know, nothing. I you know, kind of do like half of, of, of uh, long, long distances type thing each time. But that's tough. That's mental. But that's really physical too. And I started it way too late. Yeah, endurance is a whole nother game. There's the mental endurance, but then there, there's actually the physical body endurance. And you can only fight with your body for so long. Well, Chris, always great to see you. Thank you so much. This was illuminating. Uh, this was a tour of the force of history to the future. Always great to see you. Thank you. Yeah, likewise. I enjoyed it, your own. Thanks so much. Thanks for joining us. Stay tuned for the next episode of TD Cowan Insights.